right, would you pray with me again? Father, we love you, and we just want to thank you for the gift of this morning. Thank you that we could be together here as a church family. Thank you that we could sing to you and now have a chance to look into your word. Uh, Lord, we come with uh, empty hands, and we just pray that you would, would fill them. We come with uh, open hearts, and we ask for your help, Lord, to, um, to teach us. Would you teach us what is true? Would you guide us as we study your word? Uh, would you be glorified here today? And we just ask that you uh, do all that you want to do here this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, welcome once again. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. If I haven't had a chance to see you yet, let me just say welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, if you're tuning in online, we see you. We love you. We're glad you're here, here too, so welcome. Uh, I want to invite you to uh, join me in John chapter 8. If you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible app or some way to go to John chapter 8, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're picking up this uh, sermon series that we started back in February, walking through the gospel of John. Uh, we've called the series Come and See, and so that's what we're going to be getting back to today in John 8 verse 12. And hey, before we get into John, um, just a reminder that uh, even though our church-wide fall kickoff uh, third quarter push is, is done, the sermon series is done, right? The past three weeks, if you were with us, we had this special third quarter sermon series. Uh, even though the sermon series is done, uh, the third quarter fall emphasis is not. So all fall, we're going to be talking about the third quarter and these various um, initiatives, reminders that we want to keep putting in front of you. And just two, really briefly, I want to remind you about the first was that word uh, preparation we talked about. This fall, we want to be a people of preparation. And one of the ways we do that is beyond Sunday, are we uh, reading and listening to and engaging in really uh, good resources that will help us grow in our every? And so we have a book of the month that we have for free for everybody. So hopefully you already grabbed a copy if you've been here the past few weeks. If you haven't grabbed a copy, out on the black table as you came in, there's a bunch of books called Gentle and Lowly. It's an incredible resource that we just want to give to you. So if you're here and haven't grabbed a copy of that, please grab that and read through that with us this fall. Also, again, with that, um, there's magnets on that table with our fancy little coaches clipboard, third quarter logo with a QR code uh, that will take you to our website, which has additional resources that we'd like uh, to invite you to engage in this month. There's some podcasts, some articles. So again, on our website, you can find it, but the little QR code is a quick way to get there. If you don't know what a QR code is and don't want to know and think I'm talking voodoo or something, just go to our website and you'll see it there. You don't have to worry about the QR code. Um, and lastly, uh, this idea of game time, we want to encourage, we talked about this last week a lot, right? We want everybody to get in the game, right? The work of the church belongs to the people of the church, not to the pastors or paid professionals or whatever. So we want to encourage you to use your gifts to serve here. And so if you'd like to know about how to join a ministry team, opportunities to serve, um, on your connection card that you got when you came in, you can indicate being interested in serving. And we'd love to follow up with you and talk with uh, where we could plug you in and what that could look like. There's a few third quarter reminders there before we get started. Um, Blaise Pascal was a, a French physicist, mathematician, and philosopher, Christian theologian from the 1600s, 
And he wrote much on philosophy, on the Christian faith. And one of his books, he has this great line, which is up on the screen now, where he's talking about sharing the Christian faith, sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And he says, basically, in addition to showing that the faith is reasonable and logical and makes sense rationally, we also need to, as he says here, make good men or women, make good men, wish it were true, and then show that it is. Again, make good men or women, wish it were true, and then show that it is. In other words, he's saying we want to explain the gospel, and when we help people follow Jesus, we want to do it in such a way that they want it to be true. Where where we want them to desire it to be true. In other words, we have to show that Christianity is not just objectively true and compelling and rational, but we also want to show that it is good. That Jesus is good. He's good for you. He's good for the world. This is an important reminder for us because I think today, if you've been in like Christian subculture for the past, you know, couple decades, a lot of the emphasis on apologetics or evangelism has been about, hey, we need to you know, talk about the historical reliability of the Gospels, and we need to talk about the objective truth of God's existence, and so we're going to look to, you know, biology or cosmology or philosophy to show that Christianity is objectively true and compelling and rational, and those are good endeavors. Those are good efforts. Those are helpful pursuits. We should do those things, absolutely, but what Pascal is kind of getting at is saying, hey, in addition to that, we want to help show the beauty, the goodness of the gospel, how following Jesus is good for our world. Because, hey, I've, we've seen in the past few years especially, sometimes uh, when you present facts or information or the truth with someone, um, they don't always believe it. Right? Um, you can present factual evidence, compelling reasons why, for you know, whatever topic you're talking about, is this is kind of a way to view this. And even if it's a compelling case, people might not you know, follow along with it. This is why um, we eat more Big Macs than Brussels sprouts. Okay? Because we know, like intellectually, we know one of those two options is better for us and good for us, and we should eat a lot of it, and one is not, but... Um, our, our hollows aren't always convinced along with our minds, right? So our, our heart doesn't always follow our head. So we need to convince not just people, their logical minds about the rationality of Christianity, but also want to help them see with their hearts that Christianity is good. Jesus is good. And so Pascal's quote reminds us of that. And that'll be my humble goal this morning, is to point to the goodness of Jesus, the light of Jesus for you and for our world. And we're going to see that from John 8 this morning. Just a little recap again. Back in February, we started walking through the Gospel of John. If you're new to church or to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John is one of the four main accounts of the life of Jesus, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel of John, the word gospel simply means good news. And so this book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, is the good news of Jesus, telling the story about Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection. And we've titled this series, as you see on the screen, Come and See, because we feel like that's a good summary of what the whole book is about. It's an invitation to come, see Jesus week after week, see who he is, see what he said, and will you 
uh, trust him and believe in him. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't read much of the Bible for yourself or never again for your Jesus, uh, on your own time, explored the words of Jesus, this is an opportunity to say, okay, what, what did Jesus actually say? Not just the things, you know, I've heard about him, but what did he actually say? And if you have been with us for some time, and we've already seen a lot, right? I want to throw up a quick summary slide, which is going to be hard for you to read. Sorry, people in the back rows. Um, it's a little small print, but just leave it, we leave it up there for a second. Uh, the little yellow line there is where we are today. Okay, that's, uh, this is like an outline of the book of John. We're right there with the yellow highlight, John chapter 8. And so um, what we've seen before, again, if you've been with us since the beginning, is uh, John starts out in chapter 1 with these big claims about the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see as John unpacks this language that he's really talking about Jesus. Jesus was God himself. Jesus was in the beginning. The Word became flesh. What we celebrate at Christmas, right? Son of God moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came and he walked among us. We see in chapter 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see in chapter 2, Jesus plays bartender at a wedding. Come on. Turns water into wine, keeps the wedding celebration going, his first public miracle. We see him confront the religious leaders of his day in the temple, turning over tables. We see him engage with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Remember that famous conversation where Jesus says, you have to be born again. And he says that if you believe in him, you'll have what? Eternal life. Then the next chapter, chapter 4, we see him encounter the woman of Samaria, right? With this complicated, messy past. And he offers her living water and shows that no one is too far for the grace of God. That's why Jesus came. You see Jesus heal the lame. He, he claims uh, unparalleled authority alongside the Father. He teaches with authority. He claims to be the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. It feeds the 5,000, walks on water. At the end of chapter 7, Jesus says, If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And we're only in chapter 8. <laughs> We've seen so much already, but we have so much to go. And so we press on here in chapter 8, where we're picking up where we left off. Verse 12. Uh, Ian, Pastor Ian read it for us, but let's look at it again. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Uh, the rest of okay, so quick summary here. Jesus makes this massive claim in verse 12 that we're going to talk about uh, the rest of the morning. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then... In verse 13 through 20, you see the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, are challenging him on that. They're saying, that's a pretty big claim, Jesus. Um, do you have some witnesses that could testify on your behalf? Right? We don't want to just take your word for it. So who else is speaking for you, essentially? And Jesus, you'll see later in verse 18, he points to his father. says, yeah, I have a witness, God the Father. How's that? Is that yeah, that's a pretty good witness. God, <laughs> the Father, speaking on my behalf. 
but they still don't get it, and there's confusion. And there's more to that going on in verses 13 to 20, okay? But that's essentially the nature of the conflict. Jesus making this big claim and them saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're not sure about that. We're not sure that we believe you. You know, on what authority do you say these things and so on. So uh, I want to zoom in, though, on verse 12 where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if we just like helicopter into that verse, uh, it'd be pretty powerful and seems like a really important uh, message from Jesus. But it, it's even more so when we uh, zoom out a little bit and understand the context, right? What's led up to this moment. First, I want you to think about it. He's using this image of, of light and, and darkness. We've seen that before in the Gospel of John, right? If you've been with us for a little while, back in John chapter 1, talks about the, the true light coming into the world. Jesus as the true light, shining in the darkness. Then we see in John chapter 3, it talks again about how light has come into the world. Jesus has come as the light of the world. And yet, it says, what? People loved darkness because their works were evil. And so we see this, this moral component to this image of light and darkness, that, that some will receive the light and the message of Jesus and message of the gospel and walk in his ways, but other prefer darkness and remain in their sin and in their pride and, and moral rebellion against God, essentially. But, but more than just the Gospel of John, we actually see this image of light and darkness uh, throughout the Old Testament. Okay, so there's all kinds of places where this idea of light as a metaphor shows up in the Old Testament. For example, uh, in the story of Exodus, right? And uh, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt and then leads them by what? A pillar of fire, a pillar of light at night to guide them, to protect them. We see uh, Psalm 119 said, it says God's word is a light to our path. Maybe you have that verse on like a cheap coffee mug somewhere. You know, God's word is a light Steve, our path. It's true. God's word is a light and guides us. Isaiah 60 verse 19 God himself says that he will be our light. God himself will be our light, will shine and allow us to see. And so really the Old Testament gets a lot of mileage out of this idea, this concept of light. It speaks of what? Truth, of wisdom, of guidance, of protection, of, of purity, of salvation. Lastly, though, with, with that in mind, not just the context of the Old Testament and not just the context of the Gospel of John, but John 8 specifically, if we remember the setting here and where Jesus is when he says this. Pastor Lee preached on the end of chapter 7 when Jesus and his disciples were at the Feast of Tabernacles, this uh, really significant Jewish festival in the ancient world where pilgrims would head to Jerusalem, the capital city, and for eight days they would celebrate and they would actually uh, sleep outdoors in these like temporary structures, uh, tabernacles that would help them remember how God provided for their ancestors way back in the wilderness in the Exodus generation. So this was a way to remember God's faithfulness and God's provision. It took place uh, in the fall at the time of harvest. Uh, so about September, October for eight nights. Okay, so it was an eight-night uh, long party. And every night these huge lamps would be lit. And torches would be lit by individuals who would dance and celebrate in the temple courts. 
And think about this. In, in a world without a public light after dusk, right, where they didn't have street lamps or like Friday night football and the bright light shining down. Okay, so in a world like that, the ancient world, uh, think about the spectacle that this would have been, right? Normally when the sun goes down, it's dark. But now we have these big lanterns lit and torches and dancing and, and celebration, remembering who God is. So that's what's going on here. This is where Jesus and his disciples are in John chapter 8. One account I've read even stated that on the last night of this festival, which is where we are in the context, on the last night, the main candelabrum was deliberately left unlit as a reminder that Israel, the people of God, had not yet experienced full salvation. They were still waiting for light to come. And so it's on that last day, in that setting, with that context of, of the Gospel of John and the Old Testament, that Jesus stands up and declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Jesus is claiming, I, I will be the one who will truly show you how to live. I will be the true guide and protector for my people. I will be the way out of moral darkness into purity and light. Follow me and you'll be able to see things as they are and not stumble around in darkness. These are big claims. See, within the human heart, we find this universal longing for, for goodness for truth, for purity, for light, for wholeness. And every philosophy or worldview, if you think of major world religions or even just secular worldviews today, everyone's putting forth a, uh, an idea of how to be enlightened. Right? Here's how to know what is true and uh, you know, evaluate truth versus falsehood, right versus wrong. Right? Every worldview, every major religion is trying to say, hey, we have the truth and the light that will show you the way to the good life, to human flourishing, to truth, the way things really are. And there's all these competing, competing claims out there. And in the midst of this, Jesus steps in and claims that he and he alone is the light of the world. He alone is the way to flourishing and wholeness, and purity, and truth. And like we said before, Jesus claims is then not just to be true, and objectively true, but also to be good. Good for you. Good for me. Good for our world. A helpful way, again, maybe you're hearing that and you're like, I'm not so sure. Let's think about this together. A helpful illustration that I've come across is uh, from C.S. Lewis in his work, Mere Christianity. He writes about the human search for for morality, our desire for goodness and light. And he uses the image of a fleet of ships. And he says that in order for a sea voyage with a bunch of ships to be successful, three things are required. First, each individual ship has to be seaworthy. Right? Each individual ship, there can't be, you know, holes, uh, it can't be sinking, the, the you know, sail or the engines or whatever has to be working properly, right? Each individual ship has to be whole and seaworthy. Second, 
uh, each ship has to be in proper relationship to the other ships around, right? So the ships, even if they're, you know, individually healthy, if they're colliding into one another and crashing and getting smushed each other's way, that's going to cause problems and it's not going to be a successful voyage. And third, the ships must be on the right course together, right? So if the destination is New York and the fleet arrives in Brazil, um, you know, even if they got there safely, the, the uh, journey was not successful. And so, when we think about goodness and flourishing and success in life, it's related to both individuals, relationships with greater society, and again, destination, where we as humanity are heading. And I think this is helpful to think about when we think about Jesus as the light of the world, how he has the answers to goodness and wholeness and flourishing in each of those three areas, above and against any other worldview or claim. So first, think about this. Individually, Jesus claims and promises to deal with the corruption of the human heart. Jesus claims to be able to make us individually healed, made whole, in Christ, we're promised cleansing from sin, new hearts. We made a new creation in Christ to receive God's Spirit within us, which then what leads to the fruit of the Spirit coming up out of our hearts, love and joy and peace and, and so on. And so it's not that in Christ, when we believe in him, we then become perfect, but he does change us and then grows us, helps us grow in Christ-likeness. He heals us. And not only that, but, but the light of the world. If Jesus is the light of the world, then his light shines into our hearts and helps us see what's really there. Because often in, in the world, in culture, we'll hear messages like, you are, you know, you're basically a good person, right? The human heart is basically good. And, you know, there's a few bad apples out there that got way off track, but most of us are like, you know, pretty, pretty good people, stand-up folks. But we, you know, when we take Scripture seriously, one, it contradicts that message, and two, just experientially, right, as we look into our own hearts, say, well, if that's true and I'm mostly a good person, why do I see this, this junk in my heart? You know, how do, how do I make sense of this, this pride, this selfishness, these, you know, these dark thoughts that come up in my mind? This, this lust or these trends toward, toward violence or anger or whatever it might be? Why, why do I harm the people closest to me, even though I don't want to? Like, how do I explain my own heart? If it's, if it's just all good, it doesn't, the math doesn't add up. You know what? But if the light of the gospel shines into our hearts, then we can see, actually, you know what? There's some depravity there. Right? There's need. I, my heart needs to be cleansed need to be changed. And so, and so the answer is not, I'm going to pretend that the corruption of my heart isn't actually there. No, but the, the answer is to acknowledge that it's there and come to Christ for healing and wholeness and salvation. And so in Christ, and only in Christ, can we come and be forgiven and washed and cleansed and made new. And our individual ships, back to the metaphor, can be made seaworthy. There's more we can say about that, but, but moving on. Second, the idea of, of ships being in right relationship with one another. 
Again, Jesus leads us to good and right relationships with other people. As we walk with Jesus, we're, we're taught to love people, not, not to use people, but to actually sacrifice ourselves for the good of our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. I mean, what a compelling ethic, sacrificial love for the good of others. I don't think anyone can top that. <laughs> that's, that's the top. That, that, is there any more compelling, beautiful vision how to treat other people? And I just think, so if we compare that to maybe some of the, the values of our culture and how to treat people, like one of the um, words we hear a lot about is, is tolerance. We've talked about this before. Tolerance is like a big, you know, touted virtue. We're, we don't want to be intolerant. That's like, you know, that's a real... Uh, scarlet letter if you get stamped with that. So we want to be tolerant. But it, as you think about that, I don't have a problem with tolerance, but just like, is that really the best we can do? You know, is tolerance like really the most compelling virtue in our world? Like when you tolerate someone, what, what do you think of? You're like, oh, I'm just going to, I guess we'll tolerate them, you know. I don't really like them, but I got to put up with them because, you know, I'm a nice person. I, you know, I'm just going to tolerate. Tolerance is not that compelling, Tolerance is not a very high bar, you know? I'm not saying it's to pick on people. It's just like tolerance, sure, that's fine. But we can do better, right? We can do better. Sacrificial love for the good of our world is much more beautiful than, than, than the low bar of tolerance, right? Not, I don't want to just pick on, you know, kind of the left, so to speak. But also in, in the right, like those of us that lean more right politically, there's often a big virtue emphasis put on like freedom, individual freedom, you know? Just, just let me do what I want, and we're the land of the free, and that's what it's about, is just no, you know, government restrictions or whatever. And again, yeah, fine, I don't like government overreach either, but really, is that like the best we could do? Is that the highest virtue, is just let people do what they want? What, isn't a more compelling motivation, just sacrificial love? Not only am I going to just like let you go your way, but I'm actually going to be motivated by the love of Christ to lay down my life for the good of my neighbors. Isn't that more beautiful? So then the right or the left, we, we can do better. And so I, I say the, the history of the church, you know, I don't, the history of the church is a mixed bag, right? There's some dark chapters in our history, but I think sometimes we will forget all the good done in the name of Jesus. And if you look at the history and you look at, you look at orphan care, you look at adoption, you look at hospitals, you look at the roots of science and universities and, and literacy and women's rights, I mean, all of these things, trace their roots back to Christians. Those are Christian impulses. I mean, even the idea of universal human rights. Can we ask everyone in this room, do you agree with universal human rights? I think we all would say, yeah, of course. Right? That's, just, that, that's, that's a given. All people have value, deserve dignity and protection. We shouldn't just, you know, if we're strong, we shouldn't be able just to kill off the weak, right? Or, or mistreat people because we have money and power, Right? And yet, that's not how the majority of uh, the ancient world thought. Like before Christianity, that's not how people thought. So universal human rights is a distinctly Christian idea rooted in the way of Jesus. And I'm not saying secular people can't value into that, but I'm just saying it comes from Jesus. And so these, these values like, like justice, like Love, like uh, protecting the vulnerable, like equality, which again, pretty, most people you ask in our society would, would celebrate and, and trumpet those values. They didn't come from secularism. They didn't come from atheism. They didn't come from agnosticism. And they don't even make sense, really, if you boil it down in a framework like that, in just like a Darwinian 
evolutionary framework where it's just, you know, strong survival of the fittest and the strong over the weak, uh, sacrificial love and care for the vulnerable and human rights and equality doesn't really make sense built on that foundation. But in Christ, we learn to love. And our society has been so shaped, we, just, we, don't, we don't even realize how much the Western world has been shaped by Christian thought, right? That, that we would just take universal human rights for granted um, and assume that they're just, everyone thinks that way, but they don't. But because our, our society has been so infused with Christianity for centuries, um, it makes sense to us. But the point is, it's a Christian virtue. Love for neighbor, repentance, seeking forgiveness, humility, and so on. Not that we do it perfectly, but we strive for that goal. Third, Jesus alone can lead us to the right destination, okay? That we, Jesus is at work redeeming the world, renewing all things, and we get to now play a part in that. We are invited into the one true story of God as the kingdom of God comes and this one story of redemption and hope for the world, we get to now play a part of. And so my point is simply for all the criticism that, that Christianity gets, I think we have a better story. We have the best story. And it's true. It's the most compelling, beautiful vision and picture of human flourishing in life, and it's all rooted in the person of Jesus. You will not find a more compelling vision of goodness and human flourishing than in Christ. And so he truly is the light of the world. He says, follow me and you will not walk in darkness. It's not only true, it's good so good. Now, as the passage continues, he makes another claim. Look at verse 21. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But, but he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So in the text, just simply more conflict, more misunderstanding. Jesus says he's going away, speaking of his coming death, and they don't understand. And I want you to see what he repeats three times in verse 21 once, in verse 24 twice. He says what? They will die in their sins. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus is not only the true light of the world, but he's the only way to find life. Be saved from sin and death. And I know, you know, for some of us, for some of our neighbors maybe, that's an uncomfortable word to hear, an uncomfortable truth, but we just need to be honest if we're going to take the scriptures seriously that the Bible talks unapologetically about our sin and about our need and about coming judgment that we need salvation. The Bible talks about how we face an eternity of death apart from God because of our sin. That even though we're made in the image of God and have incredible capacity and creativity and have been entrusted with so much and can do so much in the world, yet our hearts are tainted by sin. We've fallen into sin, which is, is a complex reality that includes right, actions. We, we break the commands of God. God says don't steal, and we steal. 
God says, don't lie. And we lie. You know, we mistreat people. We harm other people in small and big ways. We fail to love people. We root for the raiders. We do all these things that are just <laughs> not right. You know what I mean? Sorry. We love you, Raiders fans. We love you. Um, but so there's, we, we break God's commands, and that's called sin. But also sin is this more complex reality of the heart, this condition of the heart where we don't love God. We don't honor God as God. We want to be king. We want to be in charge and determine how to live for ourselves. Right? And so within the human heart, there's this uh, enthronement of self. And the Bible explains it not as just like there's a few bad apples who, you know, got off track, but how sin has infected every one of us. We're sinners by birth and by choice. And not only does this lead to devastation and brokenness in our world, which again, we can read the news and it's not, we don't have to look very far to see the effects and damage of sin in our world, but also makes us worthy of, of judgment before a holy God. And so Jesus points out to them and to us, if you don't believe, you will die in your sin. You will bear the full weight of sin upon yourself. And shame consequences. And Jesus doesn't say this to shame us and just to leave us there hopeless and throw a rock at us. He says it to, to wake us up so that we could turn to him and find life. Right? So that we would see our need and come receive uh, the antidote. Come and be saved. And so uh, the rest of the text we're going to see is this is why Jesus is, is the key. You remember, well, why, do I, why is believing in Jesus what's going to make everything right? Check it out. Verse 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Even as He spoke, many believed in Him. So throughout the gospel, um, there's been confusion about who Jesus is, right? People misunderstand what he's saying. They're wondering, who are you? Where did you come from? What is this all about? And the religious pe uh, leaders of his day, the people of his day, had trouble making sense of it. And Jesus says here in verse 28, there's going to be an event that's going to make things clear. There's going to be an event coming that will show you most fully who I am. In verse 28, he says what? When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Licks all up is this phrase that's just bursting with meaning. Right? In one sense, it speaks of exaltation and ascension to glory and being, uh, again, made much of, rising to power, you could say. In another sense, though, as Jesus speaks it, being lifted up is talking about being lifted up onto the cross, lifted up to suffer and die. And so Jesus is saying, my identity and my glory is most fully revealed on the cross. When I am lifted up. So more than Jesus' miracles, more than his miracles and his authoritative teaching and his compassion on the crowds and his birth at Christmas that we celebrate, more than all those things, it's the cross that shows us most clearly who Jesus is. It's when he's lifted up, paradoxically, to receive glory and be enthroned and to suffer. 
That's where we see the love of God on display. Just think about it. What do we see when we look at the cross? What is God like when we look at the cross? We see, well, first, a God of justice. Right? A God who takes sin seriously. Doesn't just wink at it, look the other way. Mercy. Consequences for sin. At the cross, we also see a God of mercy. Right? Providing a way for us to be forgiven. And that's how, when we trust in Jesus, we go from death to life. That's why he says that if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Because those are the options. We either die in our sin and bear the consequences of our sin upon ourselves, or we put our faith in Jesus and our sins are placed on him and we are washed and cleansed through his work. When we look to the cross, we see the great mercy of God. That he's made a way for us not to receive what we deserve, but to receive life. We also see on the cross again a God of sacrificial love. Rather than leaving us to bear the consequences of our sin, he takes suffering and even death upon himself in the person of Jesus. We see a God of reversal, right? A God who takes death and suffering and brings through it ultimately resurrection and new life. This is why Jesus says, when you have lifted me up, you will know that I am he. And friends, that's why, that's why every week we turn to the cross, right? That's why week after week, this is our message. This is the message of the gospel, Christ crucified. And that's all we got. I mean, as one pastor I know put it, he said, that's the only bullet in our gun. It's, which I know is a very American metaphor, but that's the only arrow in our quiver. It's the only... It's the only item on the menu. It's the only outfit in the wardrobe, right? However you, it's, it's, it's the only thing that we have. It's, it's, you can think of a creative illustration and share it with me afterwards, right? It's, it's Christ crucified. This is where we have to look week after week. And so when I come to church, I don't need just like a little pep talk and a reminder that you're not so bad or a, little, you know, a self-help talk or just some good advice. I need the gospel. I need to see the cross. And so, friends, then the, the invitation from the text, as you see, verse 30, it concludes, right? Even as he spoke, many believed in him. There's the invitation. Many believed. They believed what he said, that he is the light of the world. Jesus, only you can provide light and life and rescue from sin and death. To believe that Jesus has shown you how, how truly loved you are. God loves you invites you to come and find life in him. Let the Father adopt you into his family. Come sit at his table. And so this is an opportunity for us. If, if, if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't think I've ever really believed. I've never said yes to Jesus. I've never put my trust in him and turned from my sin. I, I do that. This is an opportunity to simply respond to him in prayer now. But for many of us, though, we are, we are walking with Jesus and maybe we need to let the light of the world shine his light more fully into our hearts because there's parts of our hearts that we've closed off. I said, God, Jesus, you can have like 60% of my life, but, but these areas, these relationships or these ways of thinking or whatever, I, I'm keeping for me. And we need to learn to surrender. Say, Lord Jesus, you are who you say you are. Have your way. Maybe some of us are, are walking, walking in darkness. 
and there's some, there's some sin that we're walking in that we're afraid to expose to the light. We hope people don't find out about it. Maybe it's something shameful from our past or it's something shameful in our present. Something we want to cover up. Maybe it's pornography. Something we don't feel like we can talk about. The invitation is then to bring that to the light. Not only to the Lord and confess it to him, but also then to a brother or sister. Right? We're called to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. We need to bring those things to the light. And it's then that we are, are healed. When we're honest and bring them to Jesus, then, then he can heal us. Leading. So I'm going to pray and just leave some space for you to do business with the Lord as he's leading you. And then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for your goodness. Again, you are the light of the world. You allow us to walk in the light and not in darkness. And it's, we know, Lord, that we're not perfect people as we come to you. We know that even as we walk with you, we stumble and fall, and yet you, you continue to guide us and teach us and shape us. And so that's our desire, Lord, is to be more like you, to let your light shine into our hearts. And so, Lord, I just want to leave a minute here just for anyone who uh, wants to say yes to you for the first time. I can say that to you now in prayer. Or anyone who needs to bring something to you out of the darkness and into the light. pray, Jesus. Amen. Stand with us this morning.